Heavenly Father, we really want to hear from you now. We hear from uh, a lot of uh, other sources during the week. We hear from uh, many people of the world. We hear from leaders and we hear from people on TV and we hear from coworkers and we hear from family and friends and neighbors. Some of it's some of its words that uh, that are wise, but a lot of it, Lord, a lot of what's uh, coming out of the world are things that uh, pull us away, that take us away from you. So we we gather now because we want to hear truth. We want to hear clarity. We want to hear something fresh from your word that we know is solid and that is grounded in a different way than the things that we hear throughout our week. So Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Impress it upon our hearts. Make its roots go down deep in us that we might experience great fruit from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are um, in the book of Esther today. The title of this message, I'm not going to take us through an introduction as much today, but the title of this message is Fearful Yet Faithful. Fearful Yet Faithful. Faithful, and we'll be in the book of Esther chapter 4, but I wanted to get us up to speed to chapter 4 in case you have not been with us yet, and we'll learn a little bit more about what it means to be fearful yet faithful as we go through this story. The year is 475 BC. King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes of Persia, is on the throne. The Jewish people are a small minority in Persia having been exiled there a hundred years prior. But they did not wallow in their minority status. In fact, they did just the opposite. They went to work. Some of them even found themselves rising up in power in Persia. Two such people, Esther and her uncle and adopted father, Mordecai, they were two such Israelites that made the most of their opportunities. Mordecai had risen up so much that he was an official before the king. An official at the king's gate, it is said. And he had given clever counsel to Esther, which helped her become the queen. But these two instances of Jewish influence in Persia did not mean that the Jews were living comfortably in a distant land. The Persians were pagans, and among their citizenry were some that had developed long-standing hatred toward the Jews. Unfortunately for Esther and Mordecai and the Israelites, one such man, who happened to be second in command of all of Persia, was someone who hated them. Haman was his name. And as we learned last week in chapter 3 from Pastor Tom, Haman found a way to convince King Xerxes to issue a divine edict ordering the execution of every Jewish man, woman, and child. 
As the order made its way through the immense Persian kingdom, you can imagine the impact that was felt throughout the kingdom. We can only imagine the reaction that must have been felt by people who received this order. We catch a glimpse of that in chapter 4. Let's all stand as we read from Esther chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 1, going back just a little bit of what Pastor Tom covered, and then continuing to verse 17. Esther 4, we read this. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes When he learned all of the edict, that is, all of the decree and what was about to happen to his people, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, verse 3, when the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes, verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, her uncle, and, and take his sackcloth away from him. But Mordecai would not accept them. Then Esther called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend to her, and, and she gave her servant a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hatak came, went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy or exterminate the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their Jewish destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go to the king, make supplication to him, and plead before him for her people, the Jews. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to her servant and gave him him a command for Mordecai. He goes back to Mordecai, verse 11. He says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself, Esther conveys, I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai, verse 13, told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way 
and did according to all that Esther commanded him. You may be seated. Verse 1 again. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out into the midst of the city, he cried with a loud and a bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Here we see Mordecai in, uh, in a, a state of traditional Jewish mourning, right? We see the term sackcloth and ashes. These are rags, if you will. And they would put ashes on, on, their, on their head and on their body. And in some cases, in, in some indications, in some of the uh, apocryphal literature, they would even put dirt or even manure on their body as an expression of their deep and utter despair. Mordecai, of course, was despairing because of an order that had been issued. An order that he, in some ways, provoked by refusing to bow the knee to Haman, the king's second in command. That order that went out into all the land of Persia at the behest of Haman, who had convinced the king, was that all of the Jews, every man, woman, and child, should be exterminated. I wonder if in Mordecai's moment of remorse, if in his moment of sorrow, I wonder if there was a hint of remorse and regret in Mordecai. After all, it was Mordecai who had refused to bow the knee to Haman that initiated this plan to begin with. Sometimes our words and our actions can cause great pain to others. Imagine if you were Mordecai for a moment. Just pretend that you were Mordecai. Never in your wildest dreams could you imagine that by refusing to bow to Haman, you would be endangering not only your life, but the entire life of your family and the entire life of your people group. Would you regret your action? How we exercise faith has implications for others. The things we say, the things we do in this world and in the digital world, we're not just representing ourselves. Your words, your actions, they represent this community at Coast. Your words, your actions, they represent your family. Your words, your actions, they represent your employer. Your words, your actions, they represent thousands, no, millions of Christians around the world. When someone gets up on the television and says they're a Christian and begins to speak, their words, their actions have a bearing on Christians worldwide. How we conduct ourselves matters. You are not an island. The freedoms and the license that you take, they can and will impinge upon others. Your reputation will extend to others. And that is why, among many reasons, that it is so important that you embed yourself in a community, a local church community, 
where you can mutually learn, to learn to mutually submit to one another, where you can learn to show deference and respect and seek wisdom from one another. There is a time to stand up in defiance, in defiance of what you believe is evil, regardless of the consequences. There is a time for that. And perhaps Mordecai was right in refusing to bow to Haman. Perhaps he was. But there's also a time to show humble restraint in the face of evil so as not to unnecessarily endanger your life or the life of your family. Knowing which path to take, whether to stand up in in defiance regardless of consequences or whether to show humble restraint, knowing which of those paths to take involves careful consideration of God's word, listening intently to the Holy Spirit and to the wisdom of one's church family. Remember, as we read Esther, Esther is, by, by its very genre, a narrative. It is an Old Testament narrative. It's a story. As we read it, we shouldn't suppose that everything that happens is precisely what God wanted to happen. Or that God, uh, maybe, maybe I should say, what God approved of. When Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, it wasn't as if God was necessarily clapping and saying, Well done, my son, you obeyed my command. That's not the case. Mordecai made a choice. Surely there were other Jews who did bow to Haman in that kingdom. There were thousands of them. Surely there were other Jewish officials in the, in the court that took a knee when Haman walked by. But Mordecai made a choice, and that choice had consequences. Think carefully. Think carefully about the battles you wage knowing full well your words, your actions, they have a great bearing on others. For good or for bad, Mordecai stood in defiance before Haman. And his people were about to suffer the consequences of his actions. So it wasn't just Mordecai who was writhing in pain and sorrow. All of the Jews were in a state of mourning. Take a look at verse 3. And in every province where the king's command and the decree arrived, there was great mourning, continuing on there, a mourning among the Jews, with fasting, with weeping, with wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. You have to take pause and just just highlight how significant a moment this was for the Jews. Not just the Jews living in Persia, but others living beside them in neighborhoods, regular neighborhoods throughout the land. The king had ordered, because of Haman, the king had ordered the extermination of an entire foreign minority people group. On a particular day, as we learned in the last chapter, on a particular day that was about 11 months away, So the edict goes out, the order goes out that all of this particular foreign minority group are going to be killed 11 months from now on a single day. We're a nation of immigrants. In our neighborhoods, we have people from Europe, uh, Asia, Central and South America. 
We ourselves come from many of those places and and others. Pick any one of those regions, pick any one, and imagine for a moment our government issuing an order today that 11 months from now, on September the 18th, 2016, all peoples that hail from that region are to be executed and killed, not just by American armed forces, mind you, but that regular Americans in communities and neighborhoods are expected to participate and carry out the order of the government. You say to yourself, that's, that's complete and utter madness, right? That's just nonsense. That would never, ever happen, except that it has happened. It happened 2,500 years ago in Persia. It happened 75 years ago in Nazi Germany. And between those two periods of time, we could show hundreds of other historical pogroms, moments in human history, where whole people groups were to be exterminated by order of their government. It does happen. It's happened in our own lifetimes. And so when we read this, we should not suppose we're reading fiction. It has happened, and it may happen again. Vigilance is in order. In a day and age where immigration and refugees are pouring into this nation and into Europe, we should be very careful about the words and the rhetoric we use, and especially careful about the words and the rhetoric being used by current and prospective government leaders on this issue. For as history has too often shown, zeal can turn to hatred quickly, and hatred can turn to God knows what. Back to verse 4. Word, the word of, uh, of Mordecai's mourning has reached Esther in verse 4. And so she says in verse 4, or it says in verse 4, Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. In the, in the Hebrew there, it's, she was wreathing in pain. She was grieving. And she tried to send garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away, but he would not accept them. It's not easy to watch a grown man cry, especially a father figure. So Esther tries to send clean clothes his way to persuade him to cease the mourning and the grieving. But Mordecai would have none of it. He was so upset. So Esther tries something else in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. Then Esther called one of her servants, Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So he went to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, verse 7, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. 
Esther commissions her servant to go and speak to Mordecai. Notice verse 5, to learn what and why this was. Look, let's jump back to verse 5 for just a moment. To learn what and why this was. That's an interesting way of phrasing it. In fact, a lot of scholars have speculated there that Esther actually has no idea what's just happened. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought she was deeply distressed in verse 4. She was deeply distressed, but it doesn't say why she was deeply distressed. In fact, some scholars speculate that she was distressed because she had heard word that, that Mordecai was just going nuts and wailing and weeping out at the king's gate. She, she, there was a commotion, literally a commotion, and she's distressed, perplexed. In fact, in the Greek translation of verse 4 where it says she's deeply distressed, in the Greek translation, it, it indicates a word that's more like the idea of perplexed or troubled. She was confused. What's going on? When it says at the end of verse 5 that she's commissioned her servant to learn what and why this was, it's an indication that Esther might have no idea the order that was just given. What's going on? Esther doesn't fully know what's happening. She doesn't know why Mordecai is in such a state of of mourning. And you might ask yourself, well, how is that possible? How could she not have heard about this, this edict? Well, it could be that, that perhaps Mordecai just got, got word more quickly than she did. Maybe the word went out and, and Mordecai was one of the first, because he was a king's servant, he was one of the first to learn about it. And so his weeping and wailing, well, it just preceded Esther's knowledge of it just by a few moments, perhaps. But perhaps there's another explanation. Perhaps it is that Esther, being in the palace, being in the Acropolis, being in that complex, was so isolated so removed, if you will, from what is happening out in the real world again that she has no idea what the king has just commissioned. We can't be sure if Esther knew about the edict in advance or not. The text seems to suggest she didn't fully know. That, for me, is just a reminder, especially to those in leadership, those of you who are uh, any kind of executive or, or you're in government or you're, you're in some capacity on a committee of leadership or particularly governing officials, the further you remove yourself from the people and you start enacting laws and regulations and, and you start making decisions that affect regular people, and yet you're over here removed in your, in your palace, in your acropolis, in the palace complex, and, and you just don't even know what's happening in the outside world. The further you're away from the people, that's a dangerous place to be. I always want the stage lowered. That's, my, that's one of my goals. <laughs> if we ever change this sanctuary, I want it lowered. And, and a lot of... Um, a lot of the elders look at me and say, why? And my, my, my reasoning is because I want to be closer to you. Literally, physically closer to you. I don't like a stage. I want to be with you, not up high. You're in leadership, you're an executive, you're a boss, you're on a great committee. 
don't take your power and use it and wield it in ways that, that don't bless people. Be with them. Be close to them. Esther has no idea what's going on. So she sends her servant to find out. Verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened. The sum of money that Haman had, had bribed to pay into the king's treasury. He also gave him a copy. That's an indication that Esther didn't have a copy. He gave the servant a copy to take back to Esther. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And then he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him. Plead before him for her people. So the servant returned and told of Mordecai's words. Mordecai tells the story of of Haman's bribe, a copy of the decree. And then with it, he says, oh, and, and lastly, you must intervene. You must intervene. You must help us. You must speak to the king. You must find a way to reverse this horrific, horrific order. So the servant told Esther the words of Mordecai. And she received those words. But then she just had one reaction and one reaction only. And it was a a natural one. Take a look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hattak and gave him a command back from Mordecai. Verse 11. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces, all of them, they know Mordecai. That any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king, who has not been called, not been summoned, he has, the king has but one law, put them all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. They may live. Yet I myself, I've not been called to go to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Esther has one response to Mordecai, one response to his request. You must do something. You must intervene. And it is, this is not the kind of queen that, that we think of as queen. Uh, we think of king and queen maybe, oh, equal in power. Maybe they, they both wield great power and influence. Not so in Persia. The queen, while a significant role, held very little to no power, no influence. Didn't even know about the king's order for crying out loud. Hadn't even seen the king for 30 days. Esther knows that Mordecai knows that whoever goes before the king unsummoned will surely die. She says, all the king's servants, and you're one of them, Mordecai, all of them know that any man or woman who goes to the king who's not been summoned The king has but one law, put them to death. The ancient first century uh, uh, historian Josephus said of Xerxes, he said, round Xerxes' throne stood men with axes to punish any who approached the throne without being summoned. Are you crazy, Mordecai? Surely, surely you know what you're asking of me. You're asking me to approach the king at the certain expense of my life. Yeah, there was a caveat. Yes, if the king lowered the golden scepter toward the one who approached him, that person's life would be spared. Yes, there's a caveat, but that's not very reassuring to Esther. It's not very reassuring when the king hasn't called for her in 30 days. 
that is to say the insatiable king Xerxes no longer has the same fervent affection for Esther that he once had. So much for uh, the bachelor wedding story, right? Within a short span of time, Esther went from winning the role of queen, winning the show, if you will, within a short span of time, winning it all to just another woman in the harem. Now the king's eyes and now the king's heart were wandering elsewhere again. Don't lose sight of of what is said there at the end of verse 11. That is an explicit indication of, uh, well, really of of the king just literally moving on um, from a a lustful standpoint. He's tired of Esther. He... uh, he has hundreds in his harem. And it's indicated there that uh, Esther hasn't seen him in 30 days. Men, be so very careful about wandering eyes. Take a lesson from King Xerxes. Take a lesson from King Solomon. These kings could have any woman they wanted. And they did. They had hundreds of women in their harems and yet their eyes still went looking. Their heart's desire still wasn't quenched. And why? Why was it not quenched? Because they supposed that sexual encounters would make them happy and fulfilled. We heard last week, this past week, of a former NBA star, basketball star, whose insatiable lust for sex landed him in a Nevada brothel. And it ultimately landed him in a coma, in a hospital, due to an awful cocktail of drugs and supplements that he was taking just to keep pace with the lust of the flesh. Men, take a lesson from a man who knew it all too well, King Solomon, who said in Proverbs chapter 5, take a look at this, drink water, King Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? No, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. And a word to the ladies. It's important, gals. This is a little off topic, but it's in, uh, in the book of Esther, there's so much uh, innuendo there about the, the sexual appetite of King Xerxes that is a good lesson for us. Ladies, it's important that you meet this physical need of your husband. Meet it while it's simply a need. As you do, You'll help your husband pursue purity and the kingdom of God. Meet it while it's a need, not while it's an insatiable lust. Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul 
ties, he ties, he weaves. Our ability to have self-control to the meeting of sexual needs. He says, this, this needs to happen so that we can be stronger in this department here. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Wives, you can help take responsibility for this matter. But your marriage, your marriage, is much different than Esther's marriage to King Ahasuerus. Esther had little power. She had no control. If the king didn't call for her, there was nothing she could do unless she wanted to risk her very life, which is the very thing Mordecai was asking her to do. Mordecai, you're crazy, thinks Esther. And she sends that message back to him. Mordecai receives that message and he responds in verse 13. Mordecai says in verse 13, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent in this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house, it will perish. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Ever been in a situation where there were no good options? No matter, man, no matter what you did, no matter if you went this way or this way, there were dire consequences ahead of you. And you had to make a choice. You had to turn left or right situation where there's just no good options. That's what Mordecai is suggesting is the scenario for Esther. He says, Esther, think about it. In Hebrew, it's literally form an idea in yourself. Let it sink down deep. Esther, think. You're a Jew. This edict, this order, it affects you too. Sure, the king and Haman don't know you're a Jew as of yet, but how long do you think you can hide your identity? Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the rest of us. And that's not all he says. He goes on to say in verse 14, if you remain silent in this moment, at this time, well, relief and deliverance will arise. It'll come for us, but it'll come from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And most of us read uh, verse 14, and we love, we love what's uh, listed there in the middle, where it says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. What, a, what an indication of confidence. What an indication of, of conviction that Mordecai has. Confidence that deliverance will come no matter what. We see in this a veiled reference to Mordecai's overarching conviction that the providence of God for his love, for his people Israel, it will not be overcome. But I want us to pay attention this morning to the end of verse 14, the part where Mordecai says in effect, deliverance will come regardless of what you do, Esther. But if you don't play your part in that deliverance, 
you and your father's house will perish. Deliverance will come regardless of what you do, Esther. But if you don't play your part in that deliverance, you and your father's house will perish. There are three options that scholars give to Mordecai's statements there. One is uh, he's guilting her, right? That's maybe the most mild option. He's, he's just guilting her. He's, uh, he's kind of reminding her, hey, remember all I did for you, raising you? Your, your, your parents had died and I raised you and I've, I've given you this opportunity. Maybe he's guilting her a little bit into heeding his advice and going before the king. A second option is that he's warning her of divine judgment that might befall her if she refuses to do something to protect her people Israel. And a third option that some scholars suggest, which I find a little, little much, but nevertheless, it's on the table, and that is that Mordecai is potentially threatening her. Not he himself threatening her, but that the community behind him is threatening her. That if she doesn't stand up and protect them, that if any of them are spared, that they would take it against her that they would hold her partly responsible if she refused to help. I don't think that third option is very credible just because I don't think that, uh, well, for various reasons. I think it's probably more of a combination of one and two, a little bit of guilt and surely a little bit of divine warning. When it comes to the miracle of God's deliverance, there are times when we can do nothing, that all we can do is pray and cry out to God for deliverance. You think of the the Red Sea, right? And then when the Israelites crossed, there was nothing they could do. There was a whole sea in front of them. They couldn't swim it. They couldn't take a boat over it. They were stuck, and God delivered. He parted the waters. Total miracle. And they walked through. They couldn't do anything. Just walk. But then there are other moments when the miracle of deliverance is combined with human action, when we are in a position to help carry out the miracle of God's deliverance, when God puts us in a position to make a real and a lasting difference, when we find ourselves in the right place at the right time to answer God's call, or as Mordecai puts it, yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Are you in that place right now? Has God put something right before your eyes, right in front of you? And you find yourself in that unique position to make a difference. Through your obedience to God's call, You know you might incur earthly consequences, but you also know that he's put you there, that there's the need... Here here you are with your skills, your resources, your abilities. You can meet that need. It might come with consequences, but he's put you in that moment. Maybe you know what that moment is. Maybe you know what that need is. When that time comes, we must be ready with deep courage to do what is right, even at the risk of the consequences. Whatever Mordecai's intent was when he spoke to Esther through the servant. Message was received by Esther. 
We end with verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Okay, go. Gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go. I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all 